Chapter 31, Part 2 of Woman Suffrage and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woman Suffrage and Politics The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler. The States That Did Not Ratify. As a visible demonstration of its belief in states' rights on February 24th, the Senate and House voted to send seven anti-suffrage members to West Virginia to urge that legislature to reject the amendment. The next day, two resolutions were introduced in the legislature. One was to repeal, rescind, and recall the resolutions ratifying the so-called 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. The other authorized and requested the governor of Maryland to call on the national government in behalf of the state of Maryland to have the so-called 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act declared null and void. On March 30th, by a vote of 20 to 7, the Senate passed a joint resolution, quote, authorizing and directing the Attorney General of Maryland to bring suit or suits to prevent the Secretary of the United States from proclaiming the Federal Suffrage Amendment prior to the holding of a referendum thereon in certain states, and to test the validity should the same be ratified by the elected legislatures of three-fourths of the states, unquote. In September, just before the legislature adjourned, it was discovered that the resolution of rejection had not been sent officially to the governor of the state and by him to the Secretary of State in Washington. It was brought before both houses again on September 22nd, at which time the ratification resolution was voted down. There was great expectation in Democratic circles that North Carolina would ratify. Democratic leaders emphasized that the Republican states of Connecticut, Vermont, and Delaware having failed, it would be of strategic value if the Democratic Party could get the glory of the 36th ratification. Furthermore, it was maintained that if the North Carolina legislature defeated the suffrage amendment, it would defeat the Democratic candidate for president in November while if it ratified, it would virtually assure success to the Democratic Party in November. Of all the southern states, North Carolina now presented the greatest hope, not only because of the number of prominent men in federal and state positions in favor of ratification, but because the North Carolina press was almost a unit for it. The Republican State Convention in March had for the first time seated two women delegates and had put a woman on the ticket for state superintendent of public instruction. In April, the Democratic State Convention had seated 40 women. United States Senator Simmons and Governor T.W. Bickett, always opponents of suffrage, had announced themselves in favor of ratification. The only discouraging symptom was the attitude of United States Senator Overman, who said, quote, I have been and still am opposed to woman suffrage. It is fundamental with me, deep and inborn, but I recognize the fact that it seems inevitable. Could the Democratic Convention, which was held in April of 1920, have dodged the question and deferred action? Undoubtedly it would have. But the friends of ratification were there in force. The suffrage plank, as it came from the committee, recommended that the federal suffrage amendment should not be ratified, but that a state amendment should be submitted to the voters. Two minority reports were offered. One, to present to the convention the question whether the platform should contain a plank for ratification and the other to eliminate all reference to woman suffrage.
Men said that never in the history of the Democratic Party in North Carolina had there been such a contest over a platform. Finally, a substitute was presented for all the reports which read, quote, This convention recommends to the Democratic members of the General Assembly that at the approaching special session they vote in favor of the ratification of the proposed 19th Amendment to the Federal Constitution, unquote. This was carried 585 to 428. The attention of the whole country thereupon focused on North Carolina, and many people believed that this convention majority, though small, forecast favorable action in the legislature. Early in the summer, in response to an appeal by President Wilson, Governor Bickett had replied in part, quote, I hope the Tennessee legislature will meet and ratify the amendment and thus make immediate action by North Carolina unnecessary. We have neither the time nor money, and such action on the part of Tennessee would save this state the feeling of bitterness that would surely be engendered by debate on the subject that would come up in the legislature. I have said all that I intend to say on the subject of ratification. While I will take my medicine, I will never swear that it tastes good, for it doesn't. End quote. The North Carolina political situation was further complicated by an exciting gubernatorial primary. There were three candidates in the field for governor, two of them opposed ratification, and one made defeat of the federal suffrage amendment his chief issue. On August 10th, the legislature met in special session to consider questions of taxation. The enemies of ratification had been busy. On August 11th, a round-robin signed by 63 House members was sent to the General Assembly of Tennessee, which read, Quote, we, the undersigned members of the House of Representatives of the General Assembly of North Carolina, constituting the majority of said body, send greetings to the General Assembly of Tennessee and assure you that we will not ratify the federal suffrage amendment interfering with the sovereignty of Tennessee and other states of the Union. We most respectfully request that this measure be not forced upon the people of North Carolina. End quote. The news of this statement as it flashed over the country caused consternation in Democratic ranks. The fact that such action had been taken before the legislature had really organized showed party leaders that a force determined to defeat ratification was at work. The ratificationists decided to make a sudden and decisive coup, and pursuant thereto, on August 13th, the governor appeared before the Joint Assembly. He said in part, quote, it is well known that I have never been impressed with the wisdom or of the necessity for women's suffrage in North Carolina. But, gentlemen, in the words of Grover Cleveland, a condition, not a theory, confronts us. Woman suffrage is at hand. It is an absolute moral certainty that inside of six months some states will open the door and women will enter the political forum. No great movement in all history has ever gone so near the top and then failed to go over. We may just as well realize, gentlemen, that this country is no longer an association of states, but a nation. Whatever a majority of the people of the nation want is going to be the supreme law of the land. I realize more keenly now than ever before that states' rights have passed away. The very most this General Assembly can do is to delay for six months a movement it is powerless to defeat. This being true, I am profoundly convinced that it would be the part of wisdom and grace for North Carolina to accept the inevitable and ratify the amendment. End quote. There was pathos in this courageous but reluctant recognition of and capitulation to the new order.
It could not have been an easy task to stand before a legislature representing two and one-half millions of North Carolina people and tell them that the political faith handed down by their fathers and grandfathers and treasured by them as fundamental bases of government were but musty relics of bygone days. The governor was severely criticized for asking the assembly to ratify for party reasons without urging on members the sanctity of convention obligations. Republicans declared that they were obeying the behests of their state and national conventions, even as Democrats should be expected to live up to theirs. The Republicans in Senate and House were resentful. The result of the governor's message was to leave the Democrats unmoved and to incense the Republicans. In the afternoon, news came from Tennessee of the Senate victory, and on the same day the resolution to ratify was introduced in the Senate of North Carolina referred to the Committee on Constitutional Amendments and, within fifteen minutes, reported favorably seven to one. Simultaneously, the resolution was introduced in the House and referred to the Committee on Constitutional Amendments. August 17th, amid scenes which had not been witnessed since the days of the Civil War, the North Carolina Senate began consideration of ratification. Great crowds surged through the Capitol, the East Wing being assigned to ratificationists and the West Wing to rejectionists. For five hours a heated debate raged, with charges and counter-charges. When agreement to vote was reached, a resolution was unexpectedly made to defer action until the regular meeting of the legislature in 1921, and was carried 25 to 23. It is quite possible that when this resolution to block immediate action was introduced, it took the friends of suffrage unaware, but it is also true that there were suffrage senators who were glad to make use of any excuse to avoid a vote on the direct issue before the election. The opposition forces planned to bring the ratification up under special order in the lower house in the meantime and dispose of it quickly. Call it up and kill it right, was the way the anti-suffrage floor leader described it. The ratification resolution was called up in the House on August 18th and defeated. A rejection resolution was immediately reported by the Constitutional Amendment Committee. It was tabled in the House without a dissenting voice. Thus closed the North Carolina chapter on ratification. The attention of Democratic leaders next turned to Louisiana, the women there had early strengthened their position by uniting all organizations under one head, called the Ratification Committee, and there were many favorable assets. All of the newspapers in the state, except four, advocated the federal suffrage amendment. Martin Behrman, mayor of New Orleans, who had killed the state suffrage amendment in 1918, had not only become converted to woman suffrage, but to ratification. The New Orleans Democratic Association and the State Central Committee were in favor. The opposition centered in New Orleans, where certain elements, mainly the liquor interests, aroused in the campaign of 1918, opposed woman suffrage in any form. And there was other opposition. On reaching Baton Rouge in April, suffragists from the National American Women's Suffrage Association saw women who had worked for suffrage for 25 years and more lined up on the side of the anti-suffragists because of their state's rights belief. On May 10th, the General Assembly convened, and on the 11th, the Joint Resolution for Ratification was presented in both houses, while a state amendment and a bill providing for the payment of poll taxes by the women, in case the state amendment became a law, were introduced in the House. 
On May 13th, Governor Pleasant submitted the federal suffrage amendment to both houses with a message of many pages urging the legislature not to ratify it, but instead to submit a state amendment. On the same day arrived two anti-suffrage representatives from Maryland. They appealed to Louisiana to join hands with Maryland and kill the federal suffrage amendment, and entered no protest against state suffrage if Louisiana should desire to adopt it. On May 17th, John M. Parker was inaugurated governor. It had been expected by people throughout the country that Governor Parker would be of great assistance in the ratification campaign. As a progressive, in 1916, he had been a candidate for vice president of the United States on a platform that endorsed suffrage by national amendment. In his campaign speeches in the autumn of 1920 while running for governor, Mr. Parker had repeatedly said, I am for suffrage. It's almost here, and we must have it. Yet there appeared mysteriously, with or without his knowledge, in many parts of the state, copies of his platform containing a state's rights plank, presumably designed to placate those who were opposed to the federal suffrage amendment. This was not known to the women, and they were totally unprepared when shortly after his inauguration he announced that he was going to keep hands off the suffrage fight. It was a matter for the legislature anyway and even refused to receive a deputation of women from the Louisiana Auxiliary to the National American Woman Suffrage Association. In answer to a telegram from President Wilson urging his interest in influence, he answered that he found a great difference of opinion among the legislators, large numbers opposed to any kind of woman suffrage, and, all being Democrats, any dictation on his part would be unwise. Early in June, a hearing was held in the House chamber. The hour was 8.30 in the evening. One of the suffrage speakers reported to the National Suffrage Association, quote, I will never face anything more thrilling or more fearsome. I stood on the press platform just below the speaker's desk with the press people sitting all about me, legislators on the floor and on the aisle steps, the president and members of the National Auxiliary in the seats with the legislators or perched on the tops of the desks. They were all over the place where they could be conspicuously seen and heard, especially heard. The audience was terribly near. I could touch the first of them, and way up to the roof was a sea of faces. I could not write my speech beforehand. It had to be borne out of the inspiration of the day's events, the occasion, and the other speeches. When I looked at the men, most of them crouching behind an old tradition of state sovereignty and a pitiful make-believe fear of Negro domination, I was filled with such indignation that my speech came tumbling out. I challenged the quality of their democracy and said they voted with their party only because of one issue, the Negro question, but that in everything else they were more spiritually akin to Henry Cabot Lodge and the other Tories. The women raised one great shout and many of the men joined them. I told them that in the Mississippi Valley on the border of the Great West and out through all the reaches of the Great West itself, no such word was known as the one reiterated over and over again in the legislature of Louisiana and on the streets, and that was the word sovereign, prefixed to the name of their state, that we knew no sovereign states, we knew only the United States, the Union, where more and more the selfish interests of sections were being merged in the common good of all people. Ex-Governor Pleasant, in his argument against ratification, said, quote, The South never has stood for the 15th Amendment. It is true that seven southern states are recorded as having ratified it, yet it was done by carpetbag rule. 
it was ratified in these halls with negroes sitting as legislators and a carpet-bag governor in the office below ratification of the nineteenth amendment not only would give suffrage to the white women but to the negro women of the state if we ratify the nineteenth amendment we ratify the fifteenth and give suffrage to the negro men Unquote. reviewing these arguments Mr. Fanor Brazil cried that he did not believe, quote, that any law can be enacted that will let you, red-blooded as you are, stand by and let the Negro vote. The death knell of forced bills was sounded in 78, and you know it. I know it, too, because I was there in my parish with a gun, and the only reason that I was not imprisoned is that a friend furnished me a fast horse, and today there is a federal indictment pending against me up there. I can promise you one thing, and that is that if the federal amendment is ratified, there will be no Negro women voting in the parish of Natchitoches. That sentence caught the fancy of the crowd. No, nor in Red River either, roared a deep voice. Nor in Plaquemine. And they won't vote in Sabine, you can bet. Neither anywhere. J.Y. Sanders, United States Congressman, appealing for ratification and answering the Negro argument, said in part, Quote, there ain't but one thing, and you might as well remember it, that keeps Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama white, and that is this, that we have decreed that the palladium of our liberty and the cornerstone of our civilization rests for all time in the white democratic primary, and that once the primary is over there is not, nor under God's providence shall there ever be, any general election. End quote. From May 27th to July 8th, Senate and House played football with the ratification, state suffrage, and poll tax resolutions. In the meantime, Champ Clark, former Speaker of the House of Representatives, addressed the General Assembly and urged ratification. In answer to an appeal from members of the National Auxiliary, Homer Cummings wired Mr. Behrman to help on the grounds of party advantage and James M. Cox, Governor of Ohio, Democratic nominee for President of the United States, wired members of the legislature to act favorably, saying, The legislature owes such action to the Democratic Party. It was clear from the first that the state amendment was only a subterfuge, and as such it was killed. Ex-Governor Pleasant, its chief sponsor, was reported to have said that he did not care whether it went through or not. All he wanted was to kill ratification. With the resolution to let the voters of the state decide the question of woman suffrage by vote at the polls defeated, the poll tax resolution was withdrawn. The ratification resolution was defeated in the House and action indefinitely postponed in the Senate. The legislature then completed its record before adjourning July 8th by passing the rejection resolution in the House and withdrawing it from the Senate files. The Florida legislature was still in session when the federal suffrage amendment passed Congress, and on June 5, 1919, Sidney J. Katz, governor, sent a message to the legislature pointing out that Florida would be the first state to ratify if it chose. Move that the governor's message be referred to the Committee on Unfinished Business, yelled a chorus of voices. This was met with loud guffaws of laughter, as that is a committee that never reports. Suffrage lost by skylarking in the House, read the newspaper headlines next day, and under them was this, quote, The suffrage amendment resolution would no doubt have passed, as earlier in the session a resolution proposing submission of a state suffrage amendment had carried but that the spirit of fun had permeated the house and practically killed all business. End quote. 
The legislature adjourned on June 6 without taking action on the governor's message asking for ratification. The Constitution of Florida regarding ratification of federal amendments reads, quote, No convention or legislature of this state shall act upon any amendment of the Constitution of the United States proposed by Congress to the several states unless such convention or legislature shall have been elected after such amendment is submitted. End quote. It was later that this same provision in the Tennessee Constitution was held to be outruled, but even at this time it was known that the legislature of Florida had ratified the federal prohibition amendment, though half of the members composing it were elected before the amendment was submitted. To the request of the National Suffrage Association for a special session, the answer of the governor was a most emphatic no, bolstered up with a statement which read, quote, I have no intention of calling the legislature to consider the woman suffrage amendment. I did my best to pass the same at an extra and a regular session. The legislators were very much opposed, and it would do no good to call them together again for the same purpose. End quote. There was, just the same, a continuation of appeals all through the year. Legislators were interviewed, and no stone was left unturned to secure a session. Florida, as well as Tennessee, was affected by the decision of the United States Supreme Court regarding the Ohio referendum case, and when this decision came in June 1920, and legal obstructions were by it set aside, it was hoped that Florida, where many towns had given municipal suffrage, would break the shackles that bound her to tradition and take her place as one of the ratifying states. But she did not. Florida was the only state in the United States that successfully evaded action. During the last year of the campaign, there hung on the wall at the National Suffrage Headquarters a large map of the United States which recorded the suffrage history of each state by a system of differently colored stars. When the campaign was completed, 38 of the states bore an additional star to show that they had ratified the federal suffrage amendment, while nine had a black star to show that they had failed to ratify it. Florida had none. These black-starred states were in a row along the Atlantic seaboard from Delaware to Louisiana, the majority constituting the heart of what was once the Southern Confederacy. But was the black record really made in defense of states' rights against federal dictation? Not a bit of it. The proof? It was the South that led the campaign for prohibition by federal amendment. The measure was introduced in the Senate by a member from Texas, and of the 19 Southern Senators who voted against the submission of the Federal Suffrage Amendment, 14 voted to submit the Federal Prohibition Amendment. Fifteen ratifications of the Prohibition Amendment took place the year following its submission. Eleven of them were those of Southern states. Every state that failed to ratify the Woman Suffrage Amendment on the alleged ground of federal interference ratified the Federal Prohibition Amendment. An argument which claims that it is a violation of states' rights for New Jersey, Connecticut, or Rhode Island to ratify woman suffrage and impose it upon South Carolina, Alabama, or Georgia, which rejected it, but that it is no violation of states' rights for southern states to ratify federal prohibition and impose it upon New Jersey, Connecticut, or Rhode Island, which rejected it, is more ingenious than convincing. To summarize, of the ten states that did not ratify the federal suffrage amendment, Florida took no action in either House. Georgia's vote was null and void, as Senate and House did not act on a joint resolution. Delaware ratified in the Senate and refused to take action in the House. Mississippi ratified in the Senate and defeated ratification in the House. 
North Carolina voted to postpone action on the ratification resolution in the Senate and tabled the rejection resolution in the House. South Carolina passed a concurrent instead of a joint rejection resolution, and each House voted on a different measure. Louisiana passed a rejection resolution in the House, but the Senate Journal shows the rejection resolution to have been withdrawn from the Senate files. Maryland discovered just before the legislature adjourned that its rejection of February 17th had not been officially conveyed to the Federal Secretary of State, and on September 22nd voted down a ratification resolution, but did not present the rejection resolution as the Federal Suffrage Amendment had been proclaimed a month before. Alabama and Virginia adopted joint rejection resolutions in both houses. These two states, therefore, represented the total tally of states that were actually scored in the rejection program of the anti-suffragists. End of chapter 31. Read by Sandra.